ending this first installment on the book of Acts, and um, my sense is I have, uh, I don't remember getting as much feedback on a book of the Bible series as I've gotten on the book of Acts. And um, one of my guesses for the reason is that the book of Acts is so down to earth, it's real, and it's so, so much easier for us to enter into the true story of what God did among his people in the first century, and we can relate that to our challenges uh, today in the 21st century. I think that's a big reason. Um, so I promise we will finish the book of Acts, but with summer right around the corner, we're going to transition to a series on the Psalms. And, um, and, and, and do that for the first time since my very first summer here at GRC in 2004. So we're long overdue for a, a series on Psalms. Acts was written by uh, Luke, who also wrote the gospel, as a narrative to describe the infancy stage of the early church under the leadership of the apostles. It's really a sequel, as we said in the very first um, message on the book of Acts. It's a part two narrative. And Luke, the, the author, uh, starts Acts by calling his gospel, his former book, where he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the natural question to ask is, if Jesus is back at the right hand of the Father in heaven, how, has, how can he continue to do and to teach anything? And the book of Acts is the answer. The traditional name of this book is the Acts of the Apostles, but we said that the, uh, the better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit never draws attention to himself. His purpose is to exalt Jesus. And so when the risen Savior is proclaimed by God's people, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work filling God's people. So Jesus continues to direct all of the affairs of history, even though he's physically absent. And that's how we got our sermon series graphic. It's a director's chair. The spotlight is on the director, Jesus, but he's not actually physically present. How does he continue to do and to teach? He works through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really, a, a, in a nugget, the, 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 a summary of the book of Acts. Jesus working through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no passive Christian living. We are all called to be on mission for the king. Pentecost chapter 2 marked the initial outpouring of the Spirit on God's people. And what was the main evidence of a Spirit-filled life? Not the signs and wonders that we see here and there, but the consistent, bold proclamation of the risen Savior Jesus. That is Spirit-filled living. And so the church and the individual believers and the pastor who proclaim Christ are all uh, giving evidence that they are filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what the Spirit does. He shines the spotlight on Jesus and not on himself. And if you want a rule of thumb, here it is again. You will never be full of the Holy Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. You'll never be full of the Holy Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. Humility, prayerful dependence, Awareness of your need, those are the ingredients that unleash spirit power. And the immediate result in chapter 2, at least, is 3,000 people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They are raised to new life through the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. The next result is a community of faith radically transformed. The end of chapter 2 gives us this description of the believers facing up in worship, in in sharing and belonging, 
and out on mission. And those three key words form the backbone of GRC's mission statement. Up, in, and out. Those are the orientations of relationship that we feel called to imitate. Chapter 3 gives us a taste of refreshment and restoration when the Apostle Peter heals a crippled man who was born that way. It's more about theology than biology, we said. It's more about the reality that because of sin, nothing is the way it's supposed to be than it is about what caused this condition, what genetic issue or perhaps it was an injury. Maybe he wasn't born that way. But sin causes everything to be corrupted and decay, but God. Those are gospel words of hope. We see peppered throughout the New Testament, but God is at work making all things new through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, ministry like healing gets apostles thrown in prison. No good deed goes unpunished. And the church responds to this crisis, chapter 4, the same way the church responded to the crisis in chapter 1 of Jesus leaving them uh, to return to the Father's side. The people gather to pray. And once again, God's response is to fill his people with the Holy Spirit. And once again, Spirit-filled people proclaim the risen Savior to the world. If there's any formula to how the church of Jesus Christ should respond to crises, there it is. We pray, the Spirit fills, we proclaim Christ. How do you respond to brokenness like we saw down in Charleston this week? We pray. The Spirit fills. We proclaim Christ. That's the solution to everything that has gone wrong because everything that has gone wrong is a result of sin. And the antidote to sin is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The prayers that God's people pray aren't for protection from enemies. They aren't from, for, for freedom from suffering. They pray specifically for boldness to speak the word of God. That's what Acts is all about. The purity of God's people is so important, especially during this infancy stage, that uh, God removes impurity before it can spread. He cuts out the infection. Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5, misrepresent um, their generosity to uh, other, other people, and God takes them home. It's a startling account. But it's much more about mercy upon the church than it is about judgment upon believers. Chapter 6, the first deacons are raised up. And one of them, Stephen, gets arrested for preaching the word of God. Ironically, at his trial, he preaches a sermon. And his biblical summary focuses on God's temple, the place of holiness. The religious authorities and priests have it wrong. Access to God cannot be gained through doing the right things or being in the right place, even like a church sanctuary, let alone the temple in Jerusalem. It's only provided through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, who was the ultimate deacon, servant, and who is the perfect high priest. Chapter 8 brings a major uh, transition. Persecution breaks out and scatters Christians from the epicenter in Jerusalem in order that God might use them to bring the gospel into all Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. God allows it to happen because his plan is greater than the comfort of God's people. And sometimes he scatters us out of our comfort zone 
sometimes we need to pray, God, what are you teaching me? How would you have me respond? Not just get me out of here. Relieve this pressure so I can get back to my normal living. One example of of the gospel starting to go out into the ends of the earth was the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, a man who was the ultimate outsider, sexually neutered, unable to have children, leave a legacy, such a big deal in that time and culture. An African man traveling to Jerusalem to worship, but excluded because um, Gentiles, let alone eunuchs, were not allowed in uh, the temple courts. The gospel proclaimed by Philip, another deacon, offered him inclusion, real belonging, the promise of God to never cut him off, which we said was quite meaningful to a man whose identity was defined now by having had something cut off. Bringing outsiders in, that's a vivid picture of the gospel. Another man who was brought in was Saul, ironically, the greatest insider, religiously speaking. He was one of the, uh, the, the best Pharisees, zealous for the law of God, out to persecute Christians because he believed he was defending the honor of God um, against people who were believing in a crucified Messiah. No such thing, Saul would say. And so Jesus needed to confront him, to redirect his life, to turn it upside down and to turn him uh, uh, totally around. Saul lost his physical vision in the mercy of God for three days, but the Holy Spirit granted him at the same time spiritual vision to see who Jesus really is, the Messiah of Israel, the King above all kings. Saul was a most unlikely instrument to be God's messenger, but so was every sinner redeemed by the blood of Jesus called on mission to serve the King. We're all unlikely. Paul says to Titus, it's not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. And Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul when he's renamed, is Exhibit A. In chapter 10, Peter has this amazing dream, all-you-can-eat meat buffet. It's an interesting scenario. God showed him that everyone is unclean because of sin, and that universal spiritual condition is the only reality that can tear down dividing walls. None of us has anything to brag about, be proud of, feel superior to, including those of you who have a problem with my dangling prepositions. I like them. They sound better. Um, The ultimate dividing wall isn't those who know their grammar and those who don't, or those who have one skin color and those who have another, um, although that's a very real issue, as, as we know, as we've been rudely reminded of again this week. The ultimate dividing wall is between a holy God and all of sinful humanity. And until we grasp that deeply, until we see that that is the singular reality underneath every dividing wall, until we begin to pray fervently that the Spirit would use us to proclaim that message of reconciliation between God and sinful humanity that is only provided through the death of Christ, will we ever begin to tear down those dividing walls of hostility? For whatever reason, they exist. The last passage we looked at, Acts chapter 12, involved King Herod Agrippa, who intensified persecution against the church. He had James's head cut off. He had Peter thrown in prison before the angels sprung him from prison. And by the end of chapter 12, the real king was the only one left standing. The sovereign one over all the earth, the Lord God Almighty, 
demonstrates his sovereign will. Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God continues to increase. That sovereign will of the king, even in allowing suffering and persecution, we said is no different, is one and the same with the perfectly loving heart of a father. And that shapes the way we pray. How can that be? Because resurrection is ultimate. Resurrection alone defeats our greatest enemy, which is death. Resurrection will one day make all things new. That's the message of hope that pervades the book of Acts. Jesus is king. His spirit is at work through his people, even in the face of earthly and spiritual enemies. And Jesus is coming back. Chapters 13 through 28 will await the fall. Let me pray, and then I'd love to uh, hear from you. Lord, thank you for the privilege of walking through this truest of all stories. Thank you, Lord, that you did not uh, enable human authors to airbrush this reality. It's raw, it's earthy, it's just like life is today. So by your Spirit, that same Spirit that filled the apostles in the early church, fill us and let us see truth. Guide us, Lord, as we interact in this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't done this before at GRC, um, it's been a while, but uh, I like to do this because, partly because preaching, especially um, when Jesus does it in the Gospels, is very often dialogical. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is recorded for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but it's not likely that he just stood there and delivered it from beginning to end. It's very likely that he um, interacted with people, and then he went this way based on um, what people were asking and, and what people were sharing. Okay, So I, I like to do that every now and then. Um, <clears throat> that's not a question. That's somebody who emailed me. A tiger. A tiger next to an Arab guy. Um, any questions? And it usually requires a brave person to break the ice. Ann. If you were to give three basic truths from these 12 books, what would they be? You're holding me to my own standard, are you? <laughs> Three-point sermons. There was one Sunday when I had a two-point sermon. Uh, okay, I just say, if you're keeping score, there was one. Um, I, would, I would start with, uh, not necessarily in temporal order, because this, the one I'm going to start with is going to become more and more obvious in the second half of, of uh, Acts, but we, we began to see it in 12. Uh, there is only one king, and his name is Jesus. Because Paul is going to begin to uh, uh, lead the effort in these missionary journeys to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and he's going to encounter stiff resistance. Um, including these governors uh, who work for Caesar, and he's going to end up in Rome, and nothing will stop the purposes of a God who uses his people. Okay, That would be the second thing I'd say. Um, 
you know, straight from the sermon graphic or, or the thinking behind the sermon graphic and the theme behind the sermon graphic, um, how does Jesus continue to do and to teach these things through us? And we can never read, um, especially the book of Acts, let alone, uh, uh, you know, in, in even other parts of the Bible, but especially the book of Acts, we can't read it and think, gee, that's nice that God did that 2,000 years ago. The question always has to be, how do I take what I just read and apply it? Because God is continuing to use his people, unlikely instruments, as we all are, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, to accomplish even greater things than Jesus did, he says to his disciples in John's gospel. How is that possible? The Holy Spirit. That's the third thing. You know, um, Spirit-filled Christians. And there's all kinds of subcategories under that. You know, what does it look like? We said over and over, it does not look like signs and wonders, although God may do that. You know, it doesn't look like strange things happening. It doesn't look like a a traveling sideshow. It it looks like always, and if you don't see this, you don't see spirit filling. It always involves centrally the people of God proclaiming Christ Christ. Above all else, when people do that, and don't just uh, think it, it's done from the pulpit by the pastor, when people, the people of God proclaim Christ, they're doing that as a result of being filled with the Spirit, and that's Spirit-filled Christian living. Okay, so there's only one King; He chooses to use unique instruments, unlikely instruments like us, and the only way that's possible is the power of the Holy Spirit, and we should be. Um, you know, again, another subcategory is how does the Spirit come? Prayer, humility, that cultivates dependence on God. Okay. Thanks, Anne. If you asked me for four points, I don't think I could have given it to you because it's wired in me. Anything else? Clark. What, what's the role of um, and the manifestation of speaking in tongues nowadays? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the first thing we see is Acts chapter 2, right? Um, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples gathered in the upper room, and they immediately start speaking in tongues. What, one thing that even um, Pentecostals would admit, so I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll tell you where we'll deviate, okay, with Pentecostals. But one thing that all Christians would admit is that the word, uh, for tongues is the same word for languages, and so um, in the, in the original Greek text, okay. So we always have to look at the context to figure out well which translation actually works better, uh, which tra- which um, indicates the author's intent more clearly, okay. And um, sometimes there's uh, both and and not either or, okay. And 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 actually, ironically, interestingly, in the English language. Um, there, there's this double entendre, uh, not, not only in the Greek, because uh, th- these are tongues of fire, right, resting on people. And we use that phrase, uh, not, not commonly, but uh, tongues of fire, and the people start speaking in other tongues uh, or other languages, and that's what your footnote will say in uh, most English translations, okay? They are speaking languages that other people recognize, and that's part of the wonder of that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Um, this is a long list in 2, 9, 10, and 11, uh, people from all across the area, intentionally because uh, it's the Feast of Pentecost and people, the pilgrims have gathered, okay? 
And uh, we said in that, uh, in that sermon um, that this is a reversal of the curse of Babel, Genesis uh, chapter 11. Okay? People started uh, uh, thinking highly of themselves. We will make a name for ourselves. We will reach high to the heavens, and God confused their languages. Okay? And it was a, it was a judgment act. And um, now he's granting understanding of languages. There, they couldn't understand any, uh, each other. And those of, uh, those of you parents who have the Jesus Storybook Bible, you know, our kids always laughed out loud at this story because uh, there was this, you know, bonked him in the nose. That was always hilarious. Um, read that chapter when you get home if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible. If not, there are a couple of Bibles uh, that you can borrow. Um, but they can't understand each other. Acts chapter 2 they understand each other, and it's this marvelous thing that God has done. Okay, so first thing is tongues um, sometimes simply means languages in um, the New Testament. Okay, now if you look at the context of of um, Acts chapter ten, Cornelius, all you can eat meat buffet. I've got to speak your language, Clark. Right, um, Acts chapter ten, Peter's still speaking. He's preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes. Um, the uh, circumcised Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues, footnote, or other languages, and praising God. Okay. Now, there, there's no context where people of other cultures necessarily were needing to hear what was going on. It was all of Cornelius' household, his servants, his friends. Presumably, they all spoke Greek, okay, uh, the, the language of, of the empire. And uh, so the, the tongue speaking here seems a little bit more supernatural um, as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And we, we said um, primarily in Acts 7 and 8, um, when the Samaritans received the word of God and... Um, um, here in 10, and we jumped ahead in, I think, 19, in one sermon, uh, I, I tried to explain how these were such monumental page turns in redemptive history that uh, the, the evidence, supernatural evidence that God's Spirit had come upon the believers was necessary to, to convince even the apostles that the Samaritan half-breeds, the despised um, you know, the, the, the deepest prejudice that existed in your um, heart if you were a Jewish uh, believer in the first century was against the Samaritans. Even the Samaritans are receiving the word of God. Wow, we can't argue because the sign of the Spirit, um, the Pentecost sign, came upon the believers. Okay? And here, Acts chapter 10, even Gentiles, the, the text even says even even Gentiles. Peter, we, we didn't cover this. Acts chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. He has to explain himself because the, the church leaders are like, you know, what did you do? <laughs> you walked into the house of a Gentile. And Peter says, look, I did because of this vision. And he tells it again. And the Spirit came upon them. And then they say, oh, okay, we can't argue. All right. And then again, it happens later. Um, why? Because we're in, in an interesting stretch of redemptive history, and even the apostles needed to understand from God this was real, okay? What are tongues used for today? Um, my position, um, largely shared with maybe minor variations by other members of the session, my position is open but cautious. Open, 
uh, God can give the gift of tongues to anybody. God can give, uh, can work miracles anywhere, anytime. Uh, cautious, I, I don't see that God um, needs to give the gift of tongues or grant a person the gift of miracles so that I can walk around and choose to heal anybody I want, okay? Uh, there, there seems to be a, a, a transition even by the end of the book of Acts and certainly by the end of the Old Testament where the apostolic miraculous gifts are not present in as much um, regularity. All right, so what do I believe tongues is used for today? I think uh, 1 Corinthians 14 gives us this little picture of a prayer language, all right? And 1 Corinthians 14 also, which is perfectly appropriate, um, the Spirit um, groans for us with words, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, I'm not grabbing this, um, in words that uh, we cannot express, okay? I'm rough, I'm butchering. Um, but that can be a, a the utterance of the Spirit, helping us to pray, even when we don't even know what to say. Okay, I think that's valid. Um, should we be asking for that? Sure, why not? First um, Corinthians 14 also says, very clearly, even more clearly, if somebody um, stands up and speaks in tongues, it's only valid if someone else stands up and interprets it, because otherwise it does no good. Okay, so that's where I would uh, differ openly with a Pentecostal church. Cedar and I, uh, early on in our marriage, um, visited a handful one of which said, okay, people, it's time to speak in tongues. Go at it. And they gave us like 10 minutes, okay? And we were fiddling our thumbs. Um, that's, that's not a biblical picture. We just go at it. because, Especially in a worship service, somebody needs to interpret. So we would differ with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters and say that's not really the way um, tongues should be used in this day and age, okay? And we no longer need tongues as a confirming sign because that early stage of redemptive history is no longer the case. And Romans 8 gives us the very clearest statement. If anyone um, does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And that's a name very commonly used for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ. Okay, If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And so you can't come to faith in Jesus, call yourself a Christian, and then wait around for the Holy Spirit to be given as a gift. That's no longer a separation in, uh, in time as it was in this very unique stage of salvation history. Lee? So, so Peter, in light of that, how would you encourage us to think about the book of Acts in terms of things that are normative for the church today right. as opposed to things that were exceptional for that period of time? Yes, great. And we, I use that word normative um, in that sermon trying to explain the, the spirit being given as a gift subsequent to faith in Jesus, okay? What's normative? What, what, what should we expect to happen today versus that was only for that time and place, okay? And, um, you know, I think the book of Acts on balance shows us, and it goes back to, you know, my third answer to Anne, which is, well, what is, what is the evidence of a spirit-filled uh, Christian uh, or church or pastor, it is not signs and wonders, and, and it's not the case even in the book of Acts that, you know, we see, and every time we, we came up on a, a phrase that said, um, and the people were filled with the Spirit, I took pains to say, do you know what happened next? Not a display, a fireworks display of signs and wonders, but they preached the Word of God. 
And so in the, in the book of Acts itself, in the text, even while signs and wonders are happening at the hands of the apostles, the text itself links spirit-filling with word-proclaiming, okay? And so that is absolutely normative. Um, we are filled with the Spirit, and that's why in my summary I said, here's the church's, if there's a formula of how the church should respond to brokenness in our world, it is we pray, the Spirit fills, and we proclaim Christ. Uh, that's normative, always. If God chooses to work miracles in our midst, we... Um, want to ask expectantly. And so when we do a healing service, um, you know, that, that, that gets Pentecostal, right? Um, uh, some people are like, what, what is a healing service? Are people going to fall over? You know, well, not so far, because um, we don't program that. But um, we ask expectantly by faith that God would heal uh, certain situations, that God would reconcile um, broken relationships and uh, whether it's spiritual or physical or emotional, that God would grant mercy. And um, we have had uh, what we would call miraculous um, answers to healing prayer. Um, the first one I ever heard, I, I won't name names, but I, um, in case they're a little self-conscious, but um, the man, a member of our church, didn't even come to healing prayer. He was kind of annoyed that... Um, you know, they came and it wasn't what he expected. And he had, I forget the details, it was years ago, he had a growth on his neck, I think, and it was healed. Um, and um, God can do those things, but uh, it's not normal. Um, so I, I, we could probably go on and on, but I hope that's a brief uh, and, and uh, sufficient answer. Other thoughts? We've got a couple more minutes. Nobody emailing. I'm surprised. Ryan. How do you uh, view the importance of persecution to church growth today? Great, great. Um, we saw that at the beginning of Acts 8, right? And um, we also talked about it last week. And um, the, the first thing I'd start with is the last thing we ended with in terms of walking through a meaty passage. And last Sunday... Uh, my last point was trying to um, provoke us a little bit to think differently about prayer. So I, I, would, I would focus persec- uh, your question, um, my answer to your question on prayer. Um, uh, Judy Lunt has been um, bringing some um, materials and program and um, information to my awareness, and, and um, we're going we're gonna to resume something we've done a long time ago but haven't done for a while which is uh, dedicate a Sunday to praying for the persecuted church. Um, it's something that we've uh, missed, and uh, it is a primary responsibility that the contemporary church has to look out for uh, fellow brothers and sisters who are suffering. Okay, um, <clears throat> And um, while we do that, while we pray for deliverance for Pastor Abedini in Iran, for example, I want to continue to encourage us, as I did last Sunday, to uh, not just have one answer in mind. God, this is what we're asking for, and if you answer this prayer, it will mean he's back here in the U.S. reunited with his wife and two children. We'd all love that. We would absolutely (laughs) rightly call that an answer to prayer because Iran is not just going to let him go, right? Um, But we also need to be praying for along the, the, the lines of, the sovereign will of God and the perfect um, will of the of a heavenly Father, 
we're tempted to say, the Heavenly Father uh, answer to this prayer would be, oh, absolutely, you know, go home to your family. The sovereign king might say no sternly, um, but they're one and the same. And so if God says no, I, I, I will not let him go. He will die um, a painful death, you know, beaten by fellow prisoners in Iran. That's no less the heart of a perfect father um, who brings him home into glory immediately. And uh, we should be praying also that uh, God would unleash spirit power upon Iran and the Middle East and all of these lands that are spiritually dark. And that's, that's so I'd say number one, far, far and above any, anything else, the relevance of persecution today to us needs to be driving us to our knees in prayer. Okay? And then, secondarily, when the suffering hits us, you know, there's one um, church leader who's saying, he's a pastor, he's saying, you know, I, I would not be surprised if my, in my lifetime, he's about my age, it will be illegal in the United States of America for me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, 20 years ago, it would have been, what are you, you're nuts. You know, this is the land of the free. And today, um, to ex- make it any exclusive claims which implies what people are not outside of the church um, is creeping closer and closer to becoming a hate crime. Um, there are laws in the UK and in Canada, for example, that are much closer to that than here in the US yet, but uh, suffering may indeed come our way um, in that regard. And um, what will we do? Will we only uh, go the legislation route and say, we've got to change these laws, you know, picket um, the Capitol? Uh, maybe we should do that. Uh, we should. We're responsible citizens and we have a voting right, right? But are we uh, asking God to use this opportunity, just like Acts 8? God, you know, all my best friends just had to walk away from their houses lest they be set upon by a mob. And now we're all penniless, wandering around the Roman Empire. Why would you do this, God? God's answer pretty much was, because I need to reach the lost in the ends of the earth with the good news of my son, and you are light shining into darkness, and you are my unlikely instrument, given everything you need through the Spirit to carry this good news of salvation to the world. You don't need your house. You don't need the familiar neighborhood you grew up in. Uh, You don't need vacations on the Mediterranean coast anymore. Uh, you are most fulfilled when you show that you are fully satisfied in me because you have nothing else. Can we think that way as American Christians when suffering gets a little bit closer? I'm afraid not today. And therefore, shouldn't we be praying as we see persecution out there and creeping closer, Lord, prepare us. Right now, I wouldn't handle it well. So prepare me, prepare your people, to respond the way we need to respond for your glory, not just for, you know, my comfort and pleasure. Okay. One last uh, item, question. Any over here? I don't want to bias this way. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this marvelous 
piece of scripture, this marvelous stage in history. I, I do pray along the lines of uh, some of these questions, Lord, that you would show us the critical significance of Acts for Grace Redeemer Church today and tomorrow. Lord, drive us to our knees in prayer. We know we're not a praying church, Lord. So many other things just crowd out that priority that um, few of us even think of praying. But Lord, that needs to change, especially if the tsunami of persecution is creeping closer to our shores. If we are not a praying people, then we will not be a spirit-filled people, and then we will be powerless, useless in the face of your enemies and our enemies. But we want to be bold. We want to be useful. We want to be your instruments, your ambassadors, your representatives. So change us today, Lord, and use the word that you have spoken through Luke that you've preserved for our good today. Use it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.